Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation to come along. Actually, is it possible to, as, as a slightly short man, is it possible to have this lowered just a little? Um, there we go. Yeah, that's a little better. Um, thanks for the invitation and nice to have you here. And I hope the day can be refreshing and encouraging and challenging all the things I hope we should be hoping and praying for uh, from a network which is about hearing God's word um, and these forums about hearing God's word. Uh, before we dive into this section, uh, just one more comment on, on the book if that interests you. You can either play, pay in cash if you have the, the uh, exact change, or you can give me an email address, there's a little form out there, and I can send you online payment instructions. So you can walk away with a copy or copies today and I can send you information um, later about how to pay. So that's, um, uh, and there's plenty more in the car if we, if we have a, a rush, a run on them. Um, let's pray together and ask that God um, works uh, in and through us now. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask as our loving Father for the good gift of wisdom and understanding, that you will help us know your mind better, and that this knowledge won't merely puff us up, uh, but instead it will be a knowledge that brings us to repentance and faith, to turn from sin and turn to you, to trust in you and your great promises, that you'll use your word to lead us by your spirit to become more like Christ and to know how to work uh, as fellow workers with you and your purposes in the world. Please help me speak truly and clearly and through my words may your voice be heard as we look here at uh, the teaching of your prophet Isaiah. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. So Isaiah 28 to 35 is a, is a strange section perhaps. Why look at this? Well, in one sense, if we're wanting to hear God's word uh, in rural Tasmania, then any part of the Bible will do. And uh, there's no need to sort of say, well, uh, hearing bits of the Bible in rural Tasmania or something like this. No, a any part of the Bible is God's word speaking to us, God's word speaking to us today. On the back of our little brochure, we're reminded from Romans 15 that everything written in the past was written for us to teach us so that the endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. So any part of the scriptures is good for us, is good for, our, for the church, good for the people of God. Um, so on one level, it could, we could really just open up our Bible anywhere and, and invite a preacher to come and expound the riches of God's word. Isaiah 28 to 35 is a lesser known section for some of us perhaps. Although what is interesting is how often this little part of the Bible is quoted in the New Testament. 28 verse 11, the strange tongues through which God will speak is quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 through strange tongues and foreign lips. 28 verse 16, is quoted both by Jesus and his apostles, the stone laid in Zion, and those who trust in him won't be put to shame. 29 verse 13, Jesus quotes when he rebukes the Pharisees about people whose worship is merely rules taught by men. 29 verse 14 is quoted um, in the Corinthian letters about how God will frustrate the worldly wisdom and intelligence of this world. That's a great verse for a university ministry, 29 verse 14. 29 verse 16 is quoted when Romans discusses that tricky area of um, predestination and, and, and human responsibility, uh, the potter and the clay. Over to 32 verse 15, and we find that important prophetic theme of the Spirit being poured out on all God's people, bringing new life and refreshment 
32 verse 15. 34 verse 4 is quoted by Jesus as a description of what it will be like at the coming of the Son of Man and the judgment when heaven will be rolled up and the sky washed away. Um, chapter 35 uh, it describes really Jesus' ministry, doesn't it, of the, the way of the Lord when there will be the, the uh, the eyes of the blind, 35, 35 verse 5, will be opened and the ears of the death unstopped. 35 verse 6, the lame leaping like a deer and so on. So it's one of these descriptions of really what we, we see when, when Jesus comes, isn't it, in his ministry. And he kind of alludes to this when he speaks to um, John the Baptist and says, blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. This stuff's happening. Yeah. And then a final one there, uh, 35 verse 3, is quoted in the book of Hebrews as well. That's well, interesting, hey? That the early apostles, as they were dwelling on Scripture and thinking about the significance of what Jesus came to do, one of the places they went to again and again and again is, was this part of Isaiah. That they saw here, and in the themes here, the issues explored, the promises given, one of the rich places for digging out the truths of the gospel, just like they did in Isaiah 53, you know, the suffering servant or something. In fact, Isaiah in general is one of the big five books in the Bible um, that gets quoted often in the New Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. So there's plenty of particular reasons why it would be interesting to delve into this part of Isaiah together today. So we're going to dive into this and have a look at, at what this has to say. The, the structure of this section is loosely shaped by a series of woes. Uh, you see that, 28 uh, verse 1, the first of those woes. Woe means something like doom, trouble coming, warning sign. Picture whatever the most terrifying hazmat sort of warning sign that you could have on a truck or fence or uh, facility. Uh, doom, warning, woe, 28 verse 1, woe, 29 verse 1, we see the second woe, woe to you. Uh, 29 verse 15, woe to those. 30 verse 1, woe to the obstinate children. 31 verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And then 33 verse 1, woe to you, O destroyer. A series of woes, <laughs> and we're going to cover the first three woes in this first sermon uh, under four headings. Let's see how we go then. Woe to the drunkards of Ephraim and Jerusalem. That's heading number one. Woe to the drunkards of Ephraim and Jerusalem. The glorious city of Samaria, the capital of, um, of Ephraim, the northern kingdom. You know, when uh, the, after King Solomon, Israel was split in two. Northern kingdom, Ephraim, Samaria, um, Israel, as it was called. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem. Yeah? And here's Samaria, a city that sat up on a hill, is described, its name means crown, and it's described, we have this crown, this wreath language used all through here. Woe to the wreath. The pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, this glorious beauty. And then a woe to the even more glorious city of Jerusalem, the capital of the northern kingdom, uh, southern kingdom, verse 7. 
And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Prophets and priests stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. And that the rest of the chapter is addressing Jerusalem, Zion, as she's called in verse 16. The place of God's work and justice. Woe to Samaria, woe to Jerusalem, drunkenness across all of you. A dismal, fading, wilting wreath. Not a glorious crown, but this city, its leadership, its society is fading and rotting. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, that fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of the fertile valley, woe. Verse 7, uh, similarly, woe to the drunkenness of Jerusalem, staggering from wine, reeling from beer. They're prophets, they're priests. Staggering from beer, befuddled with wine, reeling from beer, staggering when seeing visions, stumbling when rendering decisions. Verse 8, their tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. It's revolting, isn't it? And then we have a description of these teachers and leaders in Jerusalem, verse 9. Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast for it's do and do and do and do, rule and rule and rule and rule, a little here, a little there. Strange, this little section. What's it talking about? Well, it's possibly that this is actually now the drunken leaders mocking Isaiah. They're going, who is this guy? You know, and they're all jeering and drunkenly mocking him, going, who's he talking to? Talking to little babies? Is he like leading play school or something stupid like that? Because his message is just blah, 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 blah. That's roughly what you'll see in your footnotes in your Bibles, that this do and do and rule and rule in the Hebrew language is savla, sav, savla, sav, kavla, kav, kavla, kav. It's blah, 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 blah. So it's possibly that the leaders, rather than listening to God's word, are jeering. Or it's possible that Isaiah is looking at these leaders in their attempt to lead and saying, you guys are just drunken babblers. You've got nothing left to say. All you can manage is blah, 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 blah. Yeah? Either way, it's a, it's a rejection of God's word, isn't it? Yeah? The, the, a, a dissipation of life, a, an ungodliness of life leads to a disrespect to, of God's word and then a disrespect for God's word further fuels an ungodliness of life. And here the ungodliness is the abuse of alcohol, isn't it? Alcohol's a good gift from God. Jesus turns water into wine, doesn't he? Not the other way around. Uh, and, and often in Isaiah, that the promise of um, salvation comes with the language of feasting and good wine and wine flowing from hills and God's people is a vineyard that he's planted. So wine is a good gift from God, gladdens the heart, uh, is, has a place in celebration, beautiful flavour to enjoy, something that we can give thanks to God for. We can enjoy all of God's good gifts as God intended them to be enjoyed. But, like all God's gifts, uh, human sin can distort and abuse them. And alcohol with its drug property has particular power to be abused and distorted horribly, shamefully, disgracefully, 
All their tables covered with vomit, not a spot without filth, staggering, reeling, befuddled, stumbling. Disgrace, abuse, shame, addiction, regret. So here these leaders in Samaria and in Jerusalem are ruined in part by foolish drunkenness. We need to say to those as as we disciple young people at the university or in our youth groups or in our parenting that it's not adult and grown-up to abuse alcohol so you're legless. That's not like really grown up, <laughs> as if somehow it's like, oh, are you, are you little baby, never been legless with alcohol? What a child. You should be more mature like me who can't drink in moderation. <laughs> we need to actually say, no, no, this, it, it's more mature, more grown up, more adult, especially in God's eyes, to know how to use things as God gave them in maturity and moderation, to be able to feel confident and have fun, talk to girls, or talk to guys, without being drunk. That I don't need to use alcohol, depend on alcohol, sink into alcohol for confidence, uh, for comfort, for fun. Alcohol can be such a good gift from God to be enjoyed in moderation and then so spoiled leading to regrets and hurts the day at the morning after the car accident the violence fueled by drunken anger the poor decisions made when not thinking straight the hidden shame often hidden behind the doors of our houses and guarded by our families For some of us, this is not an issue. It's unimaginable. Maybe, I don't know, maybe for some of our church communities, it's not an issue because we've put strong, we've gone beyond the Bible and said no alcohol at all, you know, and so then it's no problem at all for, for some. For others of us, this is a big issue. This is perhaps the issue requiring repentance, yeah, requiring confession. Drinking too much. Sucked into it by friends and mates. Yeah, after the game. Drinking too much alone. Becoming that different person with my words and my actions. For some of you, this is the thing. And you need to hear God's word as he rebukes it. And says, this isn't good for you. This isn't life. This isn't honouring. This is shaming. This is destructive. Turn. Turn back to me, back to life, find comfort, find joy, find peace. Living with me and my ways. Of course, in the gospel, there is forgiveness for sins, even the sins of drunkenness. And the sins that come from a lifestyle of drunkenness. In the gospel, there's forgiveness no matter where I've been and who I am and what I've done. So turn back. Isaiah pronounces judgment on Ephraim and Jerusalem and the failure of their their leaders 
and the failure of their society. Verses 2 to 4, to Samaria. See, verse 2, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like a ripe fig before harvest. As soon as someone sees it and takes it in hand, he swallows it up. God will use through human empires the armies of Assyria to bring judgment in time, in history, on Samaria. And then similarly, God will bring a judgment on Jerusalem. You mock the prophet, verses 9 and 10, blah, 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 blah. You have disdain for God's word, perhaps by not being responsible teachers of God's word. And all you can manage is blah, 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 blah. Well, look at, look at the judgment here, verse 11. It's an ironic judgment. If you're saying God's word is no better than gibberish, blah, 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 blah. Very well, then. Here's a judgment for you. Verse 11, when the army, not of Assyria this time, but Babylon, when a foreign army who speaks a foreign language marches into your towns and cities and conquers you, and God uses this foreign army of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar as the judgment upon you in history, and when you then hear all around you a Babylonian language you don't understand, a language that's no, no clearer to you than gibberish, you know the judgment of God has then come. If you will not hear God's word, if you'll treat God's word as, and God's prophets and the responsibility of teaching God's words as no better than gibberish, then one day God will hand you over to, to languages you don't understand in your conquerors. And you'll no longer hear God understandably. You no longer hear him so that you can receive his promise. You'll be shut out from God's gracious word. If we will not hear God, uh, if we will not listen to God, in the end he will hand us over to hardness of heart. You know, sometimes that happens in our churches when we don't take God's living word seriously. I'm sure up here in the northwest you have churches like that, don't you? That are so traditional, so interested in form and, uh, and liturgy and a, a kind of reverence that they will not change anything, not a thing. And, and in the end, it's all mere ritual. They're no longer hearing God speak at all. It's all hidden behind, if you like, the strange tongues of 16th and 17th century English, the strange foreign languages of traditionalism lost any living meaning anymore. And sure, for a remnant, we still know what it means. We grew up with it. But for the rest, it's, it's meaningless gibberish. It's a mark of the judgment of God. Another example of that, that Paul quotes this in, Philippi, uh, sorry, in Corinthians, doesn't he? He says, you guys love talking in tongues. But I tell you what, if you talk in tongues without any meaningful interpretation, that's a sign the judgment of God's come upon you. He quotes this passage. To have uninterpreted languages. It, you may think it's spiritual, but no one understands it. It's spiritual meaninglessness. Can't edify. 
Uninterpreted tongues don't build up, don't save, don't edify, don't strengthen. Without interpretation, they're no different to the gibberish of the drunken priests or the gibberish of the Babylonian conquerors. Talk in tongues, but pray for interpretation, he says. Seek prophecy, which is understandable, he says. Woe to the drunkards. Point number two, and much briefer. Woe to boastful Jerusalem. The second half of um, uh, uh, chapter 28. Um, rebukes Jerusalem who are boasting and trusting in their political um, deals, in the security they have through bargaining with Egypt for power and protection. That, that's what this stuff about the covenant of death is. You see that there in verse 15. We've entered into a covenant of death. With the grave, we've made an agreement so that when the overwhelming scourge comes, it can't touch us because we've got death on our side. That's kind of a way of saying we're bulletproof. <laughs> we're protected from death. Egypt and other political alliances will protect us. But God says, no, 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 that's not sure. That's not strong. That won't protect you. The only thing that's strong, verse 16, is the stone God lays, the stone of his promises, his purposes, his covenant, his king, that precious cornerstone, that's the sure place to trust in. And if you trust in your covenants with Egypt, your covenant of death as it's described here, verse 18, it'll be annulled, it'll be washed away, it will not protect you. More of that in sermon number two. But for the people who will not receive the Lord, who will consist on trusting in their human strength, their superstitions, their political allegiances, sadly, the judgment of God will come. Isaiah describes the judgment in verse uh, 21 as a strange work, an alien task. That is, God is not wrath and judgment in the same way that God is love or truth or, 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 or justice. God has not been wrath for all eternity the way he has been love for all eternity. God has not been um, judgment and condemnation in all eternity the way he's been glory and truth in all eternity. Eternity, you see? Wrath and judgment is, is the expression in time of God's truth, justice and love. When in time God faces the horrible nonsense and wickedness of sin, then God's love, truth and justice expresses itself in wrath and judgment. But it's not intrinsic to God's nature. It's an alien task. It's not something that we as Christians should revel in and delight in going, oh, I just love, I love it when the preacher thumps the pulpit and preaches about the wrath of God for the wicked sinners. Take a kind of morbid glee in denouncing the world. Makes me feel better. Yeah. No, 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 it's a strange task. It's an alien task. It's something to grieve and mourn over. Like the Lord Jesus, doesn't he? Stand over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
How I long to gather you. Like a hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. Strange task, an alien task. And yet, as that farming metaphor there at the end of this chapter, 23 to 29, is, is conveying, there is a time for every purpose. God has his ways. And sometimes the time is the time for judgment. It won't last forever. There is a hope of mercy, but there is a time for judgment. Beware. And so the prophet writes and warns and says, beware. Don't make the covenant with death. Don't fall into your drunkenness. Don't shut out the word of God, but hear the word of the Lord. Turn back to the Lord. He's got a promise. Verses 5 and 6, he will once more glorify you. He will be the wreath, the crown. He will lay a stone, verses 16 and 17, and he will be a sure place to trust. Turn. Woe to the drunkenness of Samaria and Jerusalem. Woe to boastful Jerusalem. Thirdly, woe to religious Ariel. That's 29 verse 1. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. It's talking about Jerusalem. But, um, you know, cities often have a few different names, don't they? You know, there's a, there's a, what's Tasmania at the moment? Is it the holiday state? It was the Apple Isle. We can talk about Tasmania in different ways, can't we? Does Latrobe have, like, a what's on the sign? The Platypus City, I don't know. Um, we can sometimes call places the gateway to uh, the southeast, the gateway to the northwest, these kinds of things, right? Um, uh, so Jerusalem has the name Zion sometimes, doesn't it? Zion, the place where God's promise and glory and temple is. Well, here's another name. I, I don't know if it gets used anywhere else in the Bible, but here. But Ariel is another name for Jerusalem on the tourist brochure and the number plates and so on. Um, Ariel means altar hearth. So before an altar, before a sacrificial altar. Because Jerusalem's where the sacrifices happen. It's where the temple is and the priests and the, and the burned up sacrifices. And so it's the religious city with a cycle of festivals that go on and on, verse 1. Or down in verse 13 there. Um, it's a place where people are drawing near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Their uh, worship of God is merely t rules taught by men. A religious city. But in this chapter, the prophet Isaiah says, your religion is human religion. It's worldly religion. It's not religion that God delights in. False religion. Guilty religion. And so Jerusalem, Ariel, the city of David, Zion... Well, it will be an altar hearth, but not a place where sacrifices are offered up for atonement and fellowship with God. No, no, no. God will set fire to the city and it will be instead burned up of altar fire of judgment. Verse 2. I'll besiege Ariel. She'll mourn and lament. She'll be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with towers and set my siege works against you. Brought low... You'll speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will become ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. 
as God will judge the nations, so God will even judge his nation. But as so, so often the case in the prophets, almost straight away we get this gear change, the reminder that even while judgment is coming, God's still the merciful God, if only they would turn back. See verse 5? But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of devouring fire. And then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision of the night. And God will rescue. God will save. The same thing we find in that final woe of this chapter in uh, verses 15 and following. That again, there is a hope. See down there in verse 22? Uh, that uh, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the house of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. There is hope. But there is only hope in the Lord's salvation. That's the point of this chapter. Don't trust in your religion, in your festivals, in your rules taught by mere human beings, in your human effort. Don't trust in Egypt and political alliance. And don't trust in religion and religious achievement. The very religious holy, reverent, spiritual ones won't even understand what God's doing, Isaiah says. Look at verse 9, and we're nearly done. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk but not from wine. Stagger from not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He's sealed your eyes, the prophets. He's covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, Read this, please. He will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who can't read and say, read this, please, he'll say, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their lips and they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is made up of only rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. You, you won't get it, you spiritual ones, you religious ones. You can, go, you can have all the robes and all the rituals and have all the, the words and the knowledge and the, and, and the status of religious and spiritual. You can meditate and go on retreats and eat special diets and, and be ever so holy with special visions. And, but in the end, if you don't trust in the Lord for forgiveness and mercy, merely trust in his grace, that of course reaches its fulfilment in the coming of Jesus. If you don't receive him, then all that rest is trash. It's junk. It's just as disgusting as the vomit of the drunkards when it comes to being right with God. Because their guilt, you see, their blindness here is their religion. They're human religion, just like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, ever so devout and earnest, zealous, you could say, for God. 
But in their religion, they wouldn't have Jesus. God came to them. The one their prophets promised about came to them and they wouldn't have him. They interrogated him to see if he'd meet their standards. And when he wouldn't satisfy their human religion, in jealousy and resentment, they handed him over to be crucified. They murdered their God come in human form. So hear the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen closely to God's word of rebuke and God's word of promise. Be hearers of the word. Humble, repentant, trusting listeners to the word of God. Because in the word of God is not just truth and justice, it is, but in the word of God is mercy and forgiveness and hope. The only place for mercy, forgiveness and hope. So turn to him, trust in him, listen to him, treasure him. We won't have time for the, the fourth woe. Let's instead come to prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, you are the good God. You are just and right and true. And we are ashamed in, in the ways we fall short of your ways. Forgive us, please. Forgive us for Christ's sake, we ask. And we thank you so much that your word is not merely truth and justice, but is also mercy and forgiveness. That your plans of salvation, the stone that you laid, the wisdom from God is in Jesus Christ. Your wisdom, your salvation, your sure promise. We delight in Jesus. We treasure Jesus. We thank you for him. And for Jesus' sake, forgive us. For Jesus' sake, justify us. And in Jesus, by his spirit, lead us to become each day transformed into his likeness, we ask. Amen.